Please be seated. And welcome to the Great Hall. Um, there will be a short break after the lecture, and coffee will be served in room 12, I'm told. Uh, and then we'll have the question period in this hall. Can you all hear me? No. 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 Okay. Where's the mic? Oh, are you? Uh, okay, you're going to help me out, and I'll speak into it. Okay. How about how about that? No. Well, you can you can hear me, but oh, now I'm okay. Yeah, now I'm getting that weird echo that I associate with this occasion. It's like being back in FSK. Okay. Um, tonight, I want to ask a question about questions. What are they? What did I just do in asking that one? Or that one? Or this one? The questions I just asked show they are easy enough to form, and form them we do in ways that range from the clearly prosaic to the seemingly profound. What did you have for lunch today? Why is there something rather than nothing? Questions also have a central place at this college, in their own way as important as the books we read and the conversations we have. There is a reason we begin seminar with an opening question rather than presentation, or why we call the occasion after Friday night lecture the question period rather than the answer period, or even the question and answer period. Without the questions we ask, the books we read and the conversations we have would arguably lose their point. But their very importance can make questions invisible to us. They would get in the way of themselves, it seems, if we couldn't ask a question without having to ask first what it means to ask a question. And if we consider questions our best expressions of thoughtfulness, it is easy to focus on what they ask without any distinct reflection on what they are. One might even wonder if there is anything left in a question to think about once we grasp and can ponder what the question is asking about. But perhaps there is something left to think about. Questions may be invisible in one sense, but they are altogether visible in another. We give questions their own punctuation mark, their own syntax, their own intonation, and even their own verb, making a question something I ask rather than simply something I say. It even sounds odd to say that questions are said rather than asked. But what is it then that might make asking 
different from saying. What did I just do in raising a question about this difference, rather than making an assertion about it? And what would make my question different from my answer, if I had any answer to give? And do I have any answer to give? I ask this last question because I confess I can't make up my mind about the lecture to follow and what to make of where it goes. I do know I've divided it into two parts. In the first part, I will use my example of a clearly prosaic question, what did you have for lunch today? To describe something about questions, all questions, that I find essential, yet puzzling, even paradoxical. Then in the second part of the lecture, I will use my example of a seemingly profound question, why is there something rather than nothing, to try to resolve the paradox. But I will end the lecture with a question that suggests I have failed. Part one. So, what did you have for lunch today? Or suppose I ask you this and you reply, I had pizza. What makes my sentence the question in this exchange? We can assume I spoke my sentence with the right intonation and that if I wrote my sentence down, I would put a question mark at the end. I also use the verb to do to help invert my subject and verb. But there is one more thing I did. Another word I used, I began my sentence with the word what? As if to announce a question rather than an answer. Perhaps what makes my sentence the question in our exchange then has something essential to do with my use of the word what? So how am I using it? Well, I'm using it, it seems, to ask you what you had for lunch. And the grammatical role it plays in my sentence seems clear enough. It functions, so we say, as a pronoun. And this means we might presume that it is taking the place of a noun. But what noun? Again, we might presume this would be whatever noun or noun phrase identifies what you had for lunch. In this case, then, the noun would be pizza. But there is already a problem with this analysis, or at least a puzzle. It may give a fair enough explanation of how you might use the pronoun what in your answer. For example, if you were to say, what I had for lunch today was pizza. But since my question precedes your answer, and prompts your answer, it presumably makes sense in advance of your answer, no matter the answer. Even if the answer were, I had nothing for lunch. I was too busy. But this suggests that when I use the pronoun what in my question, it cannot take the place of any noun, lest my question imply your answer. But then am I not using the word what in my question as a pronoun? There's a problem with this possibility too. For even if my question makes sense in advance of any answer, it still asks for an answer. And in this case, for the very answer you give about what you had for lunch. 
Indeed, in this direction, we might say that the noun pizza is too general rather than too specific to have been replaced by the pronoun what in my question. After all, in asking you what you had for lunch, I'm asking you about the very piece of pizza you had for lunch, all other pizza aside. But what, sh what should we make then of my use of the word what? If my question is to make sense in advance of your answer, then this pronoun, if it is a pronoun, will seem to have to represent whatever you might have had for lunch, as if it's reference to your lunch were indefinite. Yet if my question is to make sense as asking for your answer, then this pronoun will have to represent exactly what you had for lunch, as if its reference to your lunch were definite, even unique. And since I only have to ask the question once, we can assume that the word what is somehow making both references at once, as if it could take the place of any lunch you might have had and the one lunch that you actually had at the very same time. But what kind of pronoun is that? There is another pronoun like this in my question related to the first. For my question is about what you had for lunch. Evidently, I can use the pronoun you without any dependence on a name it might have replaced to address my question to each of you as if my reference to you both included and excluded anyone else, at least in the audience. And this seems something like the way I can use the pronoun what again without any dependence on a noun it might have replaced, to ask my question about what you had for lunch, as if my reference to your lunch both included and excluded anything else, at least that was edible and available. There is yet another word in the most explicit form of my question, the word today, that seems to make the same double reference, as if it too were the same kind of pronoun, for there is no date that the word today need take the place of. And this allows it to refer to any day, even in referring to just one. But let me pause at this point in my account, for I can see at least two issues with it. One is that it might be wrong, in part or whole, about the use of pronouns in my question. Another issue is that the account focuses on one question but says nothing about questions more generally. So let me now try to describe what puzzles me about questions more generally and without appeal to any pronouns before moving on to the second part of my lecture. Again, my question was, what did you have for lunch today? And when I began my account of what puzzled me about it, I said that the question had to make sense in two ways at once. It had to make sense first in advance of any answer, and it also had to make sense as asking for an answer. But I might have said this much of any question, and this much is enough to puzzle me. For by making sense in advance of any answer, a question seems to be complete Yet by making sense as asking for an answer, the question seems to be incomplete. And if it makes sense in both ways at once, 
A question seems somehow complete and incomplete at once. But this sounds paradoxical rather than possible. So how is it possible? How are questions possible? And in particular, how is the kind of question we ask at the college possible? For the kind of question I asked you about your lunch, you might say, is a question for me, but not for you. And it asks for an answer possessed by you, but not by me. The kind of question we ask at the college, for example, in the opening question of a seminar, is more radical. It is a question for all of us, before the conversation begins, that asks for an answer possessed by none of us, which is why the conversation begins. But questions without answers in this sense might well be dismissed as hopeless, pointless, useless, meaningless, as if these were questions for none of us rather than all of us, in asking for answers possessed by none of us. This, then, is the paradox. For if a question is so incomplete as to ask for an answer in no one's possession, then how can it still be complete enough to be a question? How is this kind of question even possible? The epitome of such a question is my example of a seemingly profound question. Why is there something rather than nothing? For any answer to this question, be it a cause or a reason, would seem to involve something rather than nothing, which the question then obliges us to explain in yet another answer, leading to an infinite regress of answers, as if the question were asking for an answer, only to swallow it, so that no one could ever possess it. Does this mean that the question is truly profound, even the deepest question there is? Or does it mean that the question is not really a question at all? Part two. So why is there something rather than nothing? Or leaving aside any prospect of an answer, why would I ever ask myself this question? One reason, I think, involves the very point of view from which I asked you earlier what you had for lunch. This is the point of view that allowed me to address you with the pronoun you. And the point of view, then, that allows me to use the pronoun I, or me, to address myself. So here is one way to think about this. When I ask why there is something rather than nothing, I don't mean to ask merely why there is something rather than something else. It is one thing to ask myself why there is a podium in front of me rather than something else, like a table or a chair or even just the air in the hall. But it seems another thing to ask myself why there is a podium in front of me rather than nothing at all. What might lead me from the first kind of question to the second? What might lead me to suppose it possible or even intelligible that something in the world like the podium 
might be nothing rather than merely something else? Can I even use the word nothing and not mean something? But suppose I ask myself why the person behind this podium is me rather than someone else. In one sense, the answer is easy to give. It was my lecture scheduled for tonight rather than someone else's, and my decision to give a lecture that led to the scheduling. The answer to my question might continue in this vein, going back in time to my appointment at the college, to my birth, my parents' birth, my grandparents, all the way back to the Big Bang, if you like. But even this much an answer seems to leave something unaddressed in my question. For why am I the person that this answer puts so conclusively behind the podium? Why is his point of view my point of view? Why is his lecture mine? Why is he me? The person behind this podium, I can grant, is definitely me rather than someone else. But it seems I can still ask why this person is me. As if he, too, might be someone else. Not in the sense that he replaced me, but instead in the sense that he erased me, leaving me nowhere rather than somewhere. No one rather than someone. Nothing rather than something. So when I ask myself why the person behind this podium is me, even if I am no one else, I seem to be asking why I myself am something rather than nothing. And the reason I can ask this seems to be related to my use of the first person pronoun in my question and the point of view upon the world it reflects. Because my use of it allows the pronoun to refer to me and no one else, it seems to reflect a point of view upon the world that I share with no one else. It is the point of view I can call my own. Of course, you also possess your own point of view in this sense. Uh, each of you, I mean. And this is why you too can use the pronoun I to mean you and no one else. Yet since each of us shares this point of view with no one else, the view itself seems to be something that could never be something else. In other words, my own point of view upon the world, since I share this with no one else, can only be something or nothing. And the reason I can ask myself why I am something rather than nothing is that I am asking this question not only from my own point of view, but about this point of view, and why the view is something rather than nothing in being mine. But this is also the reason, then, that it seems I can ask why there is something rather than nothing more generally. From my own point of view upon the world, 
might be said to contain the world as if in a picture frame or a window frame, even if I am otherwise contained in the world as an inhabitant. In other words, the world is made present to me through this point of view, and the world has a presence then that we can distinguish from its existence. But presence in this sense seems to be presence rather than absence, or something rather than nothing. So my own point of view upon the world is what makes anything I encounter in it, like the podium in front of me, present rather than absent, or something rather than nothing. And I can make the podium vanish in this sense simply by closing my eyes. And once they close for good, I can lose the world altogether. So why I ever gained the world in this sense, why I ever found myself with eyes to open, is one way, I think, to see how I might come to ask myself and feel compelled to ask myself why there is something rather than nothing. Even so, it seems I have no hope of finding any answer. For if we take something rather than nothing to mean presence rather than absence, then asking why there is something rather than nothing, at least if I hope to find an answer, is like asking for the source of presence to present itself as if it were no longer a source. Or it's like asking for the origin of my own point of view upon the world to become a part of that point of view, as if it were no longer an origin. So we again seem stuck in paradox and stuck with the same question about questions that concluded the first part of my lecture. If a question is so incomplete as to ask for an answer in no one's possession, then how can it be complete enough to be a question? How are questions without answers in this sense even possible? But there may be another way to think about this. What if I can never find an answer to this question because in some sense I am the answer? Or what if there were no origin to my own point of view upon the world because the point of view itself is an origin? Or what if a question could ask for an answer in no one's possession and still be a question in being the source of the answer it was asking for? What if questions without answers were possible because questions without answers were beginnings? I can try to clarify my what-ifs through an example. Suppose at some point this week you wanted to know, but didn't know, who the Friday night lecturer was. If you asked anyone else who knew, they would say, Mr. Harrell is. But if you came to me, I would say, I am. The answers are the same in one sense, but their grammar still reflects a difference. And one way to put this difference, I think, is that the first answer, the one that refers to me as Mr. Harrell, is an answer anyone might have or give. But the second answer, the one that refers to me by the pronoun I, is an answer only I can give. And while in one sense I might be said to have it, in another sense, and I think this is a more exact sense, 
I don't have the answer because I am the answer. This is one example then where we might say lacking the answer means being the answer. But something similar, I think, is happening in questions where no one has the answer. Take the question in my lecture. What is a question? Let us assume there are no experts on questions to consult, no Google search we could do, no answer out there to find to put this question to rest. But what answer then could the question be asking for? This is where I think it makes a kind of sense to say that lacking the answer means being the answer. Or to try to make this more intelligible, in particular, when we ask the kind of question that can become a question for all of us before the conversation begins, and when it asks for an answer possessed by none of us, which is why the conversation begins, the answer may well be the conversation, as if answering a question were like answering a call or summons. And to dismiss questions without answers in this sense as hopeless or pointless or useless or meaningless would be heedless of the call. But in case this sounds too much like a platitude for the good of seminar, I have a more heretical way of describing the kinds of questions we ask at the college. Suppose it's true that questions without answers in a sense are possible because questions without answers are beginnings. This suggests that such questions in being beginnings have no past. They can never be asked again without being asked anew. But then for any book of the past that we might read, there is no way back to the author's meaning or intent, at least when you read that book in light of any question that has truly become a question for you, even if the author has asked it too. Since questions like this can only be asked anew, everything you do with the book in this light becomes a part of your answer to the question, not the author's. And since this was as true for the author in relation to other authors, as it is for the author and you, it would seem as if no author could ever disagree with another. And it would be mistaken then to suppose that disagreement among answers distinguishes the kinds of questions we ask. But to conclude my lecture, I want to ask two questions about my lecture. The first question has to do with my pronoun uh, let me reread that. The first question has to do with my account of the pronoun I. My use of this pronoun to refer to myself and no one else, I said meant that I have a point of view upon the world that I share with no one else. But if so, then one point of view upon the world do I share with someone else when both of us can use the pronoun we? For example, when a question becomes a question for all of us. Or to make this question more particular, 
in what sense do we form a we and not simply a you and I when we have a conversation? My second question has to do with my way of resolving the paradox about questions as I characterized it in this lecture. The paradox, to recall, was that questions were complete and incomplete at once. Complete in making sense in advance of any answer, and incomplete in making sense as asking for the answer. My way of resolving this paradox was to identify questions with beginnings. In one sense, perhaps this resolution succeeds. For the way a question can make a beginning, we might say, is when the one who asks is the one who answers. Or as if the pronoun what in such a question referred both the question referred to both the question and answers as acts united in the same first person point of view. But in another sense, I suspect the resolution fails. For beginnings can seem just as paradoxical as questions. A beginning must follow nothing, and in that sense depend on nothing, as if it were complete. Yet a beginning is followed by something, and in that sense depends on something, as if it were incomplete. So how are beginnings possible? Thank you.